The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Okay, Psalm 54, to the chief musician, with stringed instruments, a contemplation of David when the Ziphites went and said to Saul, is David not hiding with us? Save me, O God, by your name and vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God, give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen up against me and oppressors have sought after my life. They have not set God before them, Selah. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off in your truth. I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good, for he has delivered me out of all trouble, and my eye has seen its desire upon my enemies. Okay, we're in our third doctrine sermon at the suggestion of my friend Mike, we're doing this, and uh, I appreciate his advice in this, and I hope you're learning something as you go through them each week. There, uh, I know last week my wife came up to me after I was done, and she said, that was so complicated. She said, I didn't understand what you were saying, and that's okay. I mean, well, you got to figure, her background, even though she was a translator into English, it, uh, you know, her background is Japanese, and it's very hard to make these mental concepts of what's being said, especially when you start introducing the first principles and things like that. It's, it just takes effort, and you have to think it through. Now, if she read it, which I don't know if she read it, well, I, I did give her a copy, she would understand it much better. But I think she just likes to sit and listen, and you're not going to grasp a lot unless you listen several times or read it. Anyway, the uh, sermon text for our sermon today is 1 John 1, it's verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is entitled, Jesus Christ, the God-Man, Part 1, His Humanity. Obviously, he was human. They touched him. They heard him. They were there with him. There are a host of views concerning the nature of the person of Jesus Christ. Scholarly and quite unscholarly comments go back to the beginning of the Christian faith, and they go in every possible direction one could conceivably imagine. It would be impossible to even touch upon every point of doctrine that has been developed over the centuries, and there's really no need to do so for a series on basic doctrine. What needs to be understood about Christ Jesus is that he is fully God and he is also fully man. Any departure from those two principal points is by default heretical. We'll see why when we get to our third of these particular Jesus Christ sermons. But how one gets to these points can also be a source of either very poor doctrine or even heresy. Care needs to be taken to explain these things without going off on a bad path. As far as his humanity, 
There is no scriptural doubt about it. By the words of the prophets, by the typological pictures which anticipate him, by his own words, and by the words of the apostles who came after him, the humanity of Jesus Christ is an undeniable point of biblical doctrine. But to make sure that we understand the nature of that manhood, we need to at least make a short review of Scripture and then look at over one or two views which are contrary to what is sound. Often, evaluating that which is incorrect can lead us to more rightly see what is correct. In this sermon, as in the sermons to come, we will evaluate the doctrine of others, including some who are still alive today. And I have struggled over this. Shall I mention people by name that have departed from sound theology? I've really struggled because these are one of them is a guy that I've had some discussion with through the email. And I've thought, shall I do this or shall I not? But if I quote somebody, I have to give their name or I'm not properly quoting what's going on. So I have struggled over this. If you don't want to hear me citing another person and why they are wrong, then you should probably get up and leave now. I personally have struggled with this, but I'm going to have to do it. All right? To this day, we speak of the Arian heresy. That was named because of the unsound doctrine of someone named Arius. Just because someone is alive, it does not mean that their doctrine cannot be called out. In fact, the opposite is true. Arius was called out while he was alive. Paul called out unsound teachers by name, such as in 2 Timothy 2.17. If I teach, and I'm talking about Charlie Garrett, if Charlie Garrett teaches poor doctrine or even heresy, that should be noted. People should call me out. If someone is going to step into the pulpit, that person is, by default, expected to teach what is orthodox. Our text first comes from Isaiah 53. It is verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. The Messiah was anticipated. What his role and work detailed was certainly debated, but Israel knew one thing for certain. He would be a human being. Andrew understood this, and he excitedly proclaimed it to his brother, Simon Peter. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Even people not of Israel knew this would be the case. We learned this from a woman of Samaria. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So she knew he'd be a human being. There was no question in anyone's mind at the time that the coming Messiah or Christ would be a human being. Scripture was clear, and the genealogies were perfectly understood that it was so. What the purpose of Christ's humanity served is a different subject and for a different time. The fact that he is a human and how that came to be is what needs to be detailed here today. It is a marvelous truth which is revealed in his superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is Jesus Christ, a body prepared. Isaiah 9, 6 says, for unto us a child is born. It is a confirmation of what was already anticipated, even since moments after the fall of man. A human being was promised who would be born into the world, and he would be unlike all other human beings. But he would, in fact, be a human being. 
The word was prophesied by the Lord to the serpent who had led humanity into the sin of disobedience. Genesis 3.15, also known as the Proto-Evangelium. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The Lord God promised that one would come who would bruise the head of the serpent. From the details of Genesis 4, it is evident that Eve understood exactly what that meant. The naming of her first son, Cain, and the exclamation she made concerning him reveals that truth. Kaniti ish et Yehovah. I have acquired a man with Yehovah. She anticipated that her child would be the one to take on the serpent and lead her back to the Garden of Delight that she had been expelled from. That is not a dubious inference, but rather it is a proclamation based on one thing alone, the promise spoken in Genesis 3, verse 15, Messiah would be the seed of the woman. At this point in the biblical narrative, all we know is that this one will be the seed of the woman. Thus, as she rightly deduced, he would come from her, the mother of all living. Therefore, he would be a human being. Nothing else is yet explicit. However, the curious use of the words, her seed, do leave unanswered questions. The reason for this is that the Bible consistently speaks of the seed of man. It is through man that generations are noted and spoken of. The genealogical listings consistently refer to the children being begotten of a father. And when a woman is introduced into the record, it is to clarify a matter or resolve some sort of dilemma. For example, the daughters of Zelophehad are referred to several times in the book of Numbers and in Joshua and in 1 Chronicles as well. In fact, great detail is given concerning them, but it is specifically because they are the daughters of a man without sons that the specificity is given. It is the line or seed of the male, and that alone that bears the importance of the generational promises and inheritances. And so to speak of the seed of the woman should at least cause the reader to stop and ponder why the statement was given. One could not, until after the coming of Messiah, deduce the full import or implication of the term at this point. For now, the Bible is focusing on his human nature. He will come from a human being regardless of any other characteristics. Indeed, unto us a child is born." From this point, the fact that this one will be the seed of the woman is carefully tucked away as if a precious jewel which needs to be protected and cared for until it is needed again some future day when God so determines it. In its place, or rather maybe from a different perspective, the narrative now goes solely to the seed of man. With many stories interspersed throughout the narrative, it is the generations of Adam, the first man, that are highlighted. Genesis 5 gives the first notable genealogy. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. They are ten names which detail the progression of the generations of man from man to man. They state that one begets the next and so on down the line. No women are listed, though some are incidentally mentioned for specific purposes, but which are not especially related to the genealogical records. After Noah, the pattern continues. There is one main line which continues to feed the hungry belly of time, filling it up with one generation after another. 
Eventually, the line leads to the family of Abraham, of which a lot of detail is provided and many names are mentioned. At times, women are included in the narrative by name, such as Sarah and Rebecca. At others, they are referred to by family, such as the two daughters of Lot. But the focus of the lines is based on the male throughout the narrative. Even if the lines of those people, including the women, such as the daughters of Lot, lead to the anticipated Messiah. It is important, however, to stop with Abraham and to highlight one of the chief aspects of his walk before the Lord in order to understand more about this coming seed of the woman. God, in Genesis 17, says to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The lines of man have been highlighted and the seed of the woman has also been referred to. But now something new is introduced. The male organ from which issues the seed of the man is minutely discussed here and elsewhere from this point on. One who is astute will at least ask the question, why? Couldn't God have said to Abraham that he and his descendants should wear a certain hairstyle? Maybe shave their heads completely or maybe wear a beard but no mustache? Couldn't they have had a specific body mark such as a tattoo or a cutting in a conspicuous place? Such things are found in cultures throughout the world. In fact, later in the narrative, there will be a group identified by their necks, known as the Anakim, first mentioned in Numbers chapter 13. Either they have very long necks, or they ornamented their necks in some obvious way like the Egyptians did, but they had a family identifier which was readily viewable to all people. However, Abraham has one that is secreted away. And it also is one which involves the very spot of the transmission of what begets humans from one generation to the next. Indeed, a connection is being made for us to ponder and to contemplate. From Abraham, the genealogical listings continue, but those which are especially highlighted are those which descend from a son of promise, Isaac, and not from a son who came in the natural way, Ishmael, and other sons of Abraham. Abraham's many sons are listed, and at times, the sons of their sons are listed as well. But these are branches off the main trunk. The main line is Isaac, and from Isaac comes Esau and Jacob. But Jacob quickly becomes the main line of note, and Esau is easily understood to be another branch. But then, interestingly, all 12 of Jacob's sons are highlighted as a single unit, with two more added through adoption. However, from this large assembly, hints began to develop early on that one of these lines is of special import, Judah. Several stories clue us into this fact. Eventually, it becomes perfectly obvious. 
by the time of David, it can be taken as an axiom that those early stories and prophecies were pointing once again to one particular and special listing of the generations of men. And with the coming of David, it becomes obvious that the line, which is minutely and exactingly being detailed, is to specifically continue through him. The line of man is being highlighted, but a particular line of man is granted special note as it winds through the corridor of unfolding time. And during this process of unfolding, promises are made which speak of a man who is anticipated to come. Sometimes these promises or prophecies are veiled. Sometimes they are specific, even if the object of them is yet unknown. Jacob speaks of the scepter and of Shiloh. Balaam speaks of one in the distant future who would be the star out of Jacob and the scepter out of Israel. The Lord spoke to David concerning the establishment of an everlasting throne and kingdom which would come from him. And then the Psalms open up revelations time and time again of one, a human being who would be the fulfillment of all of the promises which had been made. Page after page of the Psalms introduce new insights about him. Quite often, these could only be fully understood after his coming, but many were known to be messianic all along. There is enough to know that he is coming, but not enough to be definitive about who he would be, when he would come, and so on. But the overall and most evident aspect about him is that he would be a man. Unto us, a child is born. Humanity would clothe him, and his garments would not be unlike our own. And of course, the prophets also chimed in time and again concerning this exceptional man to come. Micah even fills the information that Isaiah leaves out concerning the birth of this anticipated child. He says, But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. Bethlehem is a place. It is a part of creation. It is a fixed and it is a definite spot. But it is not just a location, like a lake or a mountain. And it is not a spot for particular animals. For example, in the Bible, there is a place called En Gedi. That means fountain of a goat. It then speaks of a place where goats are seen and obviously water is coming out of the ground. Bethlehem is a place of people. It is a city inhabited by human beings. The implication is that the anticipated ruler would be a human being as well. One plus one equals two. Nobody who reads those words from Micah would think otherwise. If he comes from a created place, and if he comes from the created people of that place, then he is a human being. This person would be from the city of Bethlehem, and he would be from the tribe of Judah. Judah descends from Jacob. Jacob descends from Isaac. Isaac descends from Abraham. From there, the genealogies, which have been carefully recorded, go right back up to Adam. Do you see how logical and orderly it all is? Human beings beget human beings, and therefore this will be a man who comes from human beings. The male line is carefully recorded for us to see this. If there is more to this man than meets the eye, it does not negate that he will be a man descended from humanity. So obvious was the prophecy concerning this coming one in Micah that when Herod the king heard the news that the king of the Jews had been born, he went to the chief priests and scribes and asked where he was to be born, this Christ, 
this Messiah? Their answer was clear and it was precise. They simply cited Micah and told him that it would be in Bethlehem. A human being from a city of human beings had been prophesied to come and to rule. We could go on and on with prophecy after prophecy clearly demonstrating that the Messiah would come into the stream of humanity as a human being being begotten from human beings. To state otherwise would not only violate every aspect of scripture from Genesis to Matthew and then beyond it, it would deny the very purpose of the sacrificial system of Israel, which anticipated in the minutest detail the need of blood atonement of a like kind of being. Now, that isn't perfectly obvious until the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, but it is as clear as can be when it is detailed there. Based on this, to state that this coming Messiah is either not a human being or that he did not come through the line of humanity from Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, and then later through Abraham by Sarah, Lot by both of his daughters, Isaac, Jacob, Judah via his daughter Tamar, Boaz through his mother Rahab the harlot, David through his wife Bathsheba, and so on down the line. Yes, from all of these and so many others faithfully recorded in scripture to state that he did not come through them, then you are not just dealing with faulty doctrine, you are dealing with heresy. It is a fundamental denial of the genealogical humanity of the coming Messiah. However, the world is full of heretics and of those who deny this fundamental basis for the coming Messiah. One of these heresies is known as doceticism. This doctrine states that the occurrence of the coming of Jesus, his historical and bodily existence, and in particular his human form, was only a semblance without any true reality. The heretic Marcion held to such a belief. He dismissed the advent of Christ as being the Jewish Messiah. To him, Jesus was rather a spiritual entity. He viewed Christ as so divine that he could not have been a human being. Such views deny what is both logically and scripturally necessary concerning the humanity of Jesus. On the other side is Arianism, or its modern equivalent, the heretical doctrine of the Jehovah's Witnesses. They state that Jesus was created as a being and not God. The deity of the God-man Jesus will be addressed, and this heresy will be refuted then. There are many odd and heretical teachings between the two as well. For example, there are those who may agree that he is a human, yet they deny that he was born into humanity. For example, I'm going to take you to a quote from the sermon, The Two Adams by Jacob Presch, and see if you can detail his errors. He says, as far as God is concerned... There's only two men who have ever existed, Adam and Yeshua, the first Adam and the second Adam. Everybody is either a part of the first Adam or a part of the second Adam. Adam and Yeshua were both created by Hashem, by God, directly and personally. And they were both created without sin. They did not have a fallen nature. I don't know if he still teaches this or not. I don't listen to other preachers' sermons unless someone tells me what they have said and they want clarification on whether it is correct or not. If you send me a video and you ask for a correction, I want you to give me the exact minute that it's said because I don't have time to watch a whole video usually. But if he has not corrected this error, then he continues in serious theological error. If he has, that's fine. But the video was sent to me. 
I was asked if it was scriptural, and I evaluated it for that reason. I will admit that I learned a couple interesting things from the sermon. But what is said here involves a serious deficiency in Christology. Briefly, the first error is contained in the first sentence. As far as God is concerned, there's only two men who have ever existed, Adam and Yeshua. This is such a strange statement that it cannot be reconciled with reality. There are countless men who have existed and all are known by God. Jesus himself said as much in Mark 12, 26. He said, but concerning the dead, that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Being gracious, we will overlook the obvious error that says there are only two men who have ever existed and grant that he later defines it as referring to the state of man. Man is either in Adam or in Christ. And there is no other option apart from those two. That is made explicit in Scripture by Paul in both Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He next says, everybody is either part of the first Adam or part of the second Adam. This is an error in terminology, which is not supported in Scripture. One is either in Adam or in Christ. The term part of is not found in Scripture, nor does it align with sound doctrine. One is in another because he bears the traits of another. One is in Adam, and he bears the traits of Adam. He may be a part of Adam's offspring, but that is incidental. When one is in Christ, it means that he now bears the traits of Christ. He no longer possesses Adam's sin nature. One may be a part of what Christ is doing in the world, but again, such a term is incidental. When Jesus said to Peter in John 13, 8, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me, he was not speaking of physically being a part of Christ, but of having a portion or a share with Christ. His third and most egregious error, and which is heretical in what it teaches, is the statement, Adam and Yeshua were both created by Hashem, by God, directly and personally. Jesus is not a created being. That is the error of many cults, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses. However, Jesus in his humanity is a part of creation. There's a world of difference between the two, and it is what defines the distinction between orthodoxy and heresy. To state that God created Jesus directly and personally, as he did with Adam, is to then deny the entire body of Scripture, which points to the begetting of human beings, one to another, from Adam to Christ. God created all things, it is true. But the body of Christ is an incidental part of creation, not a direct act of creation. Rather, God prepared a body out of that creation for the incarnation. This is evidenced, for example, by Hebrews 10, verse 5. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Scripture, given by God, carefully, even meticulously details the preparation of the body of Christ through 75 direct generations of fallen human beings, as is recorded in Luke 3, and with the introduction of even more fallen souls who are found in the passages of Scripture and who likewise enter into his genealogy. To say that Jesus was created by God directly and personally, and to have that mean what is being conveyed in that sermon, would be exactly the same thing as saying that Charlie Garrett was created by God directly and personally. It is at best a category mistake, 
but such a category mistake results in the formulation of a heretical doctrine. The body of Christ, despite having come through these innumerable fallen souls, was prepared perfectly by God, not suddenly created. Jesus is the 77th name noted in Luke's genealogy. God is the first, Jesus is 77. The record is given and the details are provided to ensure that the error of assuming that Jesus was a being created directly and personally by God would not be made. The statement that Jesus was created is incorrect, but that he was and is without sin is true. But how can that be reconciled? If Jesus' humanity descended from fallen beings, then how can it be that Jesus was without sin? The answer is found in what was commanded to Abraham in Genesis 17, and which is found in the body of every properly observant Jew concerning this precept to this day, even if they miss the significance of what it anticipated, circumcision. It was fitting for him, our Lord Jesus, for whom are all things and by whom they are as well, in bringing many sons to glory, even us, as the precious words of Scripture do tell, to make the captain of our salvation perfect through sufferings, his great tribulation. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified too are all one in his death each of us dies, a marvel in how his children he does accrue. For which reason he is not ashamed time and again to call them brothers, you and me too, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. Our second thought today is Jesus Christ, the sinless man. God said to Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 11, that being circumcised in the flesh of the foreskin was a sign of the covenant between me and you. A sign is representative of something else. It is not a thing all by itself, as many Jews seem to perceive it. See, I'm circumcised, and this is the sign of the covenant between God and me. I am right because of the cut in my flesh. That is incorrect. A sign anticipates, pictures, and reveals something else. This is why Moses speaks twice in Deuteronomy of circumcision of the heart in Deuteronomy 10.16 and Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Why Jeremiah repeats that many hundreds of years later in Jeremiah 4, verse 4, and then Paul explains what a true Jew is with these words. He says in Romans 2, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward and in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. The physical aspect of cir circumcision looks to an inner aspect. If the latter is missing, the former is void of any value. Indeed, circumcision is not limited to the Jewish people. Rather, it has been practiced and it continues to be practiced by Gentile cultures around the world, and their circumcision is as meritless as the circumcision which is found in Jews whose hearts are not circumcised along with their flesh. If circumcision is a sign of something else, then what is it a sign of? It is that which many other signs from the Old Testament anticipate, Jesus Christ. Adam, a true and actual human, was created without sin, but fell through disobedience. In his fall, sin entered into the world, and as Paul explains in Romans 5, therefore, 
just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned for until the law sin was in the world but sin is not imputed where there is no law nevertheless death reigned from adam to moses even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of adam who is a type of him who was to come in other words all bear adam's image meaning his sin nature Adam sinned, and in Adam all sinned. Because of sin, man is unrighteous. But God declared Abraham righteous by a simple act of faith. That is seen in Genesis 15, prior to the giving of the sign of the covenant. Genesis 15, 5 and 6. Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to them, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. The righteousness of Abraham led to the covenant with Abraham, and the covenant of Abraham was given a sign, circumcision. That sign anticipated the coming of Christ. Abraham understood this because he had already been told as much way back in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord had said to Avram, get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The promise of Messiah had already been made. The continued understanding of his coming is implied in the words to Abraham and thus Messiah would come through him. As Abraham was not the father of all of the families of the earth, then it follows that the words spoken to him were in relation to Messiah who would descend from him. This is something that would be again confirmed to him. Later, as we saw, Abraham was declared righteous by faith in God's words. That was Genesis 15, 6, which I just cited to you. And today, how is one declared righteous? It is through faith in Christ. But that is getting ahead of ourselves. We have to remember that it is the humanity of Christ which makes this obtainable. As Christ was not created directly and immediately, then he descended from Adam and his subsequent generations as the Bible clearly lays out. But if all in Adam have sinned, then how can Christ, who is descended from Adam, be sinless? And indeed, Paul clearly says that Christ is so descended. Was David descended from Adam? Yes or no? We all agree that it is so. And in fact, David inherited sin because of this. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. That is Psalm 51, verse 5. David is descended from Adam, but Paul says of the gospel to his protege Timothy, Remember that Jesus Christ, of the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. If David is of the seed of Adam, and Christ is of the seed of David, then Christ is of the seed of Adam. Everybody got that? In proper theology, one plus one will always equal two. To support this further, the author of Hebrews says that Christ arose from Judah. The term seed of David cannot be misconstrued or twisted because of this. The genealogical record does not allow anything but a real descent from Adam through these men and then to Christ Jesus. But this is only true in his human nature. 
And so where is the dilemma resolved? It is because of a young Jewish girl named Mary. Whether Mary is of the line of David or not is debated. She was a cousin of Elizabeth who was clearly from the priestly line of Levi through Aaron. But this does not mean that Mary was. It could be that the mother of Mary and the mother of Elizabeth were sisters descended from Aaron, but Mary's mother could have married a man of Judah. If so, then Mary would be reckoned as being of the tribe of Judah through her father. Regardless of this, though, Joseph was of the tribe of Judah and of the house of David. It says in Luke 1, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Because the line of a child is based on that of the father, to include all inheritance rights, the birth of Jesus would have been reckoned as such. However, as the account tells us, the Holy Spirit came upon her and the power of the highest overshadowed her. God is the father of Christ. As sin travels through the father and as Christ's true father is God, he inherited no sin. The rite of circumcision, the sign of the covenant, is simply a picture of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It is the cutting of the sin nature because of the cutting of that which transmits the sin from father to child. Picture fulfilled. Hence, circumcision is not required to be included in the new covenant, as Paul clearly states again and again and again in his epistles, especially in the book of Galatians. This then takes us back even further. The Bible is spoken of the generations of Adam, the generations of Noah, the generations of Shem, Terah, Ishmael, and Isaac, Esau, Levi, and so on. The seed of the man has directed the course of human history, even to Jesus Christ. But there is another seed which affects all of them, the seed of the woman. We were admonished earlier to stop and ponder why the Messiah would be called the seed of the woman. It is the seed of man by which genealogies would be determined, right? However, it is the seed of the woman that would bruise the serpent's head. The Lord did not say to Eve, your seed will bruise the serpent's head. She just assumed that it was so. He said to the serpent, Ve'eva ashit benecha uben ha'isha, and enmity I will put between you and between the woman. Eve had to assume that the woman was her, and the assumption was wrong. One can argue at another time if the woman is Israel or Mary, but Mary is of Israel. The seed of the woman is the man, Christ Jesus. Mary was the human receptacle for the God-man. Thus, he bears all of her humanity, but none of man's sin. The sign of circumcision is fulfilled. The sin nature of Adam is cut, and the righteousness of God is found in him. This would not be true if Jesus were a created being. He would not bear the humanity of David, which Paul clearly states is found in him. He would also not be a descendant of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob as promised to them. Paul explicitly says that, and he cited scripture to show that the human link is found in Jesus Christ. He says in Galatians 3.16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. 
Again, to deny the genealogical record of Christ leading to his incarnation and which makes up his humanity, one has to completely abuse the force and intent of the entire body of scripture. Jesus was born into the stream of humanity. He was not created and he was and is fully human. More importantly, a denial of the truth of the genealogical humanity which led to him would result in a problem with the deity of Christ as well. If Mary was just a receptacle for the creation of Jesus, as some have claimed, then one, Jesus is not God because there is only one God who cannot create another God. Or two, God would have to create a body for Christ which he then united with. There would be no begetting of his humanity in the process. This is similar to a confusion of thought concerning Christ's deity, which is seen in the error of the heretic Arius. He said, if the father begat the son, then he who was begotten had a beginning in existence. And from this, it follows that there was a time when the son was not. This is an error in understanding the nature of God. Jesus Christ is God. If God created Jesus in the womb of Mary, and yet he is God, then God and his creation are one indivisible single unit. But they are not. The incarnation says that God is the creator and the creation is created. Therefore, there is a distinction between the humanity and deity of Christ, a doctrine known as the hypostatic union. This describes the union of God in man in the person of Jesus Christ, two hyposes or states in one. He did not possess humanity before his conception, but since his conception, he is clothed in humanity forever. And although he is united with human flesh in this hypostatic union, he is not bound to the human nature. He remains fully God. His two natures are not in any way separate and yet they in no way intermingle. But if his body was created in the womb by God for Jesus who is God, then the two would intermingle. Rather, his humanity remains human. He has all of the attributes of a man, a human genealogy. He aged and increased in knowledge. He prayed. He got hungry. He got tired. He felt compassion. He wept. He was thirsty. Many times, more than 100, in fact, he is called the son of man or the son of David, demonstrating his human nature. Adam was created, and he is not God, though he wanted to be like God. Jesus Christ is God. This is exactly the opposite of what Mr. Presh later says in his sermon. He says he was God who became a man. This is incorrect. He is God who united with humanity in the incarnation. But unlike Adam, he treated his state in exactly the opposite way. Here's what Paul says about it in Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. In the womb of Mary, there was not a creation of man and a uniting with that man, thus forming a human who is God. That is a logical impossibility because God is infinite. Instead, there was a human who was a part of the creation and who was designed to bear children, 
who then was overshadowed by the creator in order to beget a son. The result is the God-man, Jesus Christ. He is fully human, but he is also God. This is why the very first page of the Bible tells us that all things reproduce after their own kind. Human beings beget humans. God begat a son, and Jesus Christ is the God-man. The humanity of Jesus Christ serves all of the purposes of redemption for fallen man because he is the embodiment of all that is needed to redeem fallen man. Without this humanity, man could not be redeemed. But through the shed blood of Christ, it is possible. But more, without the shed blood of Christ, it is impossible. All of the types and pictures of the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant only anticipated the coming of Messiah. As Hebrews 10 verse 4 says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. If one thinks about it logically, Christ is both the sacrifice for sin and he is the standard for judgment. He was found without sin and he prevailed over death because of it. He is the embodiment of the law, and therefore what he has done is the ideal to which all others must attain in order to meet God's standard and be accepted by him. Whether you're under the law of Moses or not makes no difference. It is the standard of God. Therefore, one will either be found in Christ and thus acceptable to God, or he will not be in Christ and be found unacceptable to God. The judgment will be that simple to conduct. There will be no balances to weigh out good and bad. There will be no listing of deeds leading to justification. There will be no time in purgatory which leads to a state of sanctification and holiness. There will only be those in Christ and those who are not in Christ. Those in Christ will be saved. The others will be condemned. For now, we will close with the thought that theology matters. Doctrine matters, and both of them matter in being precise. It is one thing to not know a matter, to be given the gospel, and then to be saved by receiving the gospel. It is another thing to be taught a heretical teaching and then be asked to trust in the one whom that heretical teaching proclaims. The first will be saved. Such a person does not need to be told the many intricate details of the incarnation of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. He simply hears the gospel, he receives it, and he is saved. However, if someone is told in advance of hearing the gospel that Jesus Christ is a created being or that Jesus Christ is not God or that people need to continue to observe the law of Moses in order to be saved or that a person can lose his salvation and on and on and on, he has put his trust in a false Jesus and he will not be saved. How can I know this is true? Because Paul says as much in Galatians chapter 1. He says in verses 6 through 9, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, one which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Another gospel is no gospel. Be sure to share the gospel, but don't confuse who Jesus is, what the nature of Jesus Christ, who is God, is, or anything else in your presentation. 
stick to the basics, and then they can go about ruining their doctrine all by themselves if they want to do so. Or they can pursue that which is sound and reasonable in order to stand approved before the Lord on the day when we face him for our rewards and losses. Our closing verse comes from Hebrews 7. It is verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah. He wasn't created. He arose from Judah. The Jehovah's Witnesses say that he was a created being. They say he's the archangel Michael and all of these other things that come out from false teachings and heretical teachings. I will make a distinction right now so you understand the difference. Bad doctrine is not the same as heresy. People are always saying, well, that's a heresy, and that's a heresy. It has nothing to do with heresy. A heresy is not, I believe, in a mid-trib rapture. No, that's just bad doctrine, okay? Bad doctrine will not keep anybody from being saved. A heresy will keep somebody from being saved. But a heretic can be a saved person. They heard the gospel, and they didn't know all the intricacies. They were just given the gospel, and they believed they're saved. But then they start espousing heresy, and the next person will not be saved. So understand the difference between bad doctrine and a heresy, okay? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful chance to understand a little bit better the person who is Jesus Christ in his humanity. We thank you for this. We know that he was a human being, that he is a human being, and that he will always be a human being. But he is also the Lord God. And we will look into that next week, and we will understand how that's possible and why it's relevant to our walk before you. Lord, we thank you that we can look into these things. We love you, we cherish you, and we praise you. And we do so all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Okay, before we take communion, I have a question for you. I didn't do this beforehand, and Adrian and his wife walked in, and I was trying to think of a question, a Maserati question to give you. And so I had to rush and think of one. So this is going to be a little difficult. But somebody might get it. We talked about Mary. You know, there are some bad doctrines out there and even some heretical teachings about Mary. They say she's a co-mediatrix. We can pray to her, to God, or she's a co-redemptrix. Some people say that she can actually redeem us, okay? So I thought I'd ask a question about Mary. When was the last time that Mary is mentioned in Scripture? Crucifixion. Crucifixion. Anybody else? What's that? No, well, no, not John. The very last time she's mentioned in Scripture. Acts what? Acts what? Acts 1. Who said that? You got it. You got half of it, and she got another one. Okay, Elaine, come up here, because you... Mom, Mom, I want you to come up, too, because you got that right. Elaine and Mom, come up here. I got something for you. Come on up. Elaine, come on up. I need both of you to come up. Because you guys, yeah, you, you guys each get a wheel because you didn't really answer it. But a, a person that attends online named Wade Nolan, he does artwork, and he did some uh, bookmarks for us, superior word bookmarks. And I, I'm not sure if he paid for these himself. Somebody else sent something that had paid for him also, a, a lady named Maya. They attend online. I don't know if they both paid for these or if only Wade did. So I don't want them to be mad at me. But Wade did the uh, the graphics. And so here's one for you. And here's Thank one you. for you. And everybody else, you will get yours by going to the back after the church and grabbing. Okay. My lovely mother. Okay. There you go. Oops. Oh, here's your Maserati. She's trying to give you your wheel. 
Okay, that's all right. Okay, so there you go. That's the answer. These will be in the back. If you want one, please take it. And uh, thank you very much for these. They are beautiful. They're very good quality. He was worried about it. The reason why is because they had these uh, little plastic things on there. And I didn't want to take them apart because you can see they're slippery and they would have gone all over the place. And so it, I took a picture and he said, it looks like they're wavy. What's the matter with them? I, no, it's just hold, holders. So they're very nice. They're a good size. They're small enough for a small Bible, but big enough for a big Bible. You know what I'm saying? So there you go. And they're really beautiful. So um, what's that? Put one in the Psalms. I'll do that right now. But first, we got to take communion because we, we got people online that def desperately need to have communion with us. So we're going to go to communion. All right. And there we go with that. Okay. Yes, I was just being silly about Acts and 1. You both got it, but it was a difficult question. I know it was. It's Acts chapter 1, verse 14 is where uh, she's mentioned last. And the reason why I say this, because she's actually mentioned very few times in Scripture, and none of them highlight her in any way except at the very, you know, uh, announcement of the birth of Christ. And it's all dealing with Christ saying that you will be the one that does this, and uh, there you go with that. But, you know, we, we hold Mary as a wonderful person. She was the mother of the Lord Jesus, but at the same time, we do not revere Mary or any of the saints. So Second John 1, Mary, now that could be, we don't know that. That's, there's some speculation as to whether that's Mary or not. It could be the church itself. The lady greets you. And it could be, speaking of the church, where at other times the church is in the feminine. And so it could be that. We don't know. That's only a speculation. And people, there are about three or four different possibilities of that. Okay, here we go. We get the instruction for the Lord. I'll put these right here. Just grab one or two or whatever you want when you go by. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. It's recorded in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, I had those backwards, where Paul said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And he would have blessed this. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it and he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. And he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech haolam, Borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Before you come up, I uh, 
did this last week as well. I, it, it's hard when you are doing a regular type of a sermon and you have a poem at the end and you have everything laid out for eight years and all of a sudden you stop doing that. And so I did not give a salvation message last week or this week. And I, I, it's not intentional, but maybe somebody is still watching that's curious about Jesus and they wonder what we're doing with the bread. And so I need to say this right now is that without Jesus Christ, you are never going to see God's face. We are all eternal beings and we're going to spend eternity somewhere. There's only two places that we're going to go. One is to heaven and one is to hell. And that is a self-inflicted wound for us because we fell in our first father. It doesn't matter what we've done in this life. And we all know we've done something wrong anyway, but we are already separated from God. We'll talk about that more in the sermons ahead. But I would ask that if somebody is watching today that has never simply said, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins and that he came out of the grave to prove it. He is God. He is a man who died and he is God that came out of the grave. That you would accept that today. That you would receive him, receive the pardon that he has given and be reconciled to God through faith. It's a simple thing. You just simply believe the gospel message. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That's God's assurance and it is God's guarantee. So please remember this and we'll greet the people online first. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.